Coming Back is a 100% listener-supported podcast. To support the show and to get your hands on some really cool podcast swag, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Your support keeps coming back ad-free, which is really awesome. Thank you. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, we'll talk to social worker and positive psychology coach Harriet Cabelli about the dream-shattering diagnosis of her daughter at just nine months old and how her coming back journey called her to write her new book, Living Well Despite Adversity. Also on the show today, I'm answering a listener question about how children grieve and how they comprehend death and loss at different developmental stages. I'm Shelby Frasithia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches the transformational power of grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Greetings, grief growers, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. I am so glad to be here with you today. This week, I wanted to talk about a listener question from my private Facebook group, The Grief Growers Garden, about how children grieve or are capable of grieving at different points in their lives. She writes, A topic of my curiosity is the aspect of age when you experience loss initially. I was a child when my first loss occurred, age six, and I'm interested in the contrast between that and someone who is maybe later in life. I want to know how a younger person, the experience of grief may differ to others because of limited life experiences. Then as you grow older and have more life lived, that grief changes and morphs and matures with age. The reason I bring this up is that individuals older than me assume when loss is brought up that I cannot possibly know what I'm talking about. I've had people in my parents' generations make comments that I cannot possibly comprehend the meaning of death or loss at six. So this is a really important question and a really big question because it's kind of a lot of questions all lumped into one. It's how do children grieve? It's how does a child's age or developmental stage affect how they're able to perceive grief and death and loss? And most critical, how should adults be talking to children about grief and loss? Because in this grief grower's experience, sadly, her ability to understand was totally invalidated by a group of adults that told her she couldn't possibly comprehend the concept of death at age six. This just breaks my heart because in truth, and you may know this from your own grief story, adults are not the only ones affected by grief and loss. As soon as we can see, smell, touch, hear, or feel loved ones in our lives, we can see, smell, touch, hear, or feel when they are no longer there. Even children who may not have the vocabulary to talk about loss still feel that energy of disconnection when someone they love or have been exposed to is no longer present. 
And I think there's this underestimation of kids too. There's this perception that some subjects are too big or too complicated for children to understand. And while that might be true for something like physics or international banking, uh, life basics like death and grief and loss are not too big for kids to comprehend or understand. In fact, if you want a quick shareable tidbit or you want to scare your family with a really fun fact, uh, main characters in children's movies are two and a half times more likely to die than they are in movies aimed towards adults, and main characters in children's movies are three times more likely to be murdered. And there's some of that uh, Disney fluff for you. So death, grief, and loss surround our kids. Let's establish that up front today. What I want to do next is to take you on a tour of how death is understood in different developmental stages, talk about common responses to death in each stage, and end on ways adults can help children face death in each stage. Now notice I'm saying death here, but you can apply this information to any other loss, including divorce, diagnosis, or a major move. And just so you know, grief growers, I am not the authority on this top of the show piece today. The research and the information that I'm reading from is from the Dougie Center, which is located here in the United States. It's the National Center for Grieving Children and Families. And I will put a link to the article that I'm reading from, which is their super helpful free guide called Developmental Responses to Grief in the show notes for your reference. There's a lot more elaboration there. So let's start with ages two to four. So in this developmental stage, children don't fully understand that death is permanent and irreversible and universal. They are most likely to express themselves through behavior and through play. Their concept of death is that death is reversible, and they're starting to wonder uh, if death happens to everyone. So you might hear questions like, my mom died? When will she be home? Will you die too? What about me? Common responses to grief in this stage are crying, irregular sleep, clinginess or a need to be held, uh, temper tantrums, telling the story to anyone, including strangers, repetitive questions, and possibly behavior regression, so needing help with things they may have already learned. Um, So things like feeding themselves, possibly helping to pick up clothes in the morning, things like that. So ways that adults can help children ages two to four cope with death is to create a consistent routine to reestablish safety and predictability, especially around the start of your day and especially around the end of your day. Another way to help is to provide short and honest explanations of death. Mommy died, her body stopped working. So use the word death, died, avoid euphemisms such as gone, passed on, lost, gone to heaven, sleeping, etc. Answer questions, honestly, uh, set limits, but be flexible when you need to provide lots of opportunities for expression and for play, give choices whenever possible. So they feel like they have some control uh, in their lives. Would you like hot cereal or cold cereal? Would you like to watch TV or go outside and offer a lot of physical and emotional nurturance? Something I kind of gathered here in ages two to four is that Death and the concept of dying is a new mind-blowing topic in the sense that they're going to have a lot of questions and they're not going to have taboos about it like adults do, which is why they might ask strangers or teachers or uh, preschool instructors, babysitters, etc. about death, dying, things like that. And it's not it's not weird for them because it's such a new concept and they want to they learn about it. They want to talk about death with everyone and everything. 
So the next stage that the Dougie Center covers is like early elementary school, which is ages five to eight. Uh, children this age are exploring independence and trying to take on their own uh, tasks. They're super concrete thinkers, but they have a tendency towards uh, magical or fantasy thoughts. And this is a stage I like to refer to as bringing death back to earth. So it's a great age to practice grounding, which means telling the full and honest truth, again, using no euphemisms, no embellishment, things like playing outside or outdoors and using mother nature and things like dying leaves or things like roadkill or things like plants dying in the fall to express and to illustrate grief for kids, things that they can put their hands on, like this tactile touch. This concept of death between five and eight, children often will still see death as something that's reversible. They can also feel responsible or like they contributed to a death and worry that their wishes or their thoughts contributed to the person dying. They might say things like, it's my fault. I was really mad at her and I wished she would die. Common responses to grief here are disrupted sleep, changing in eating habits, uh, repetitive questions, especially how, why, and who else, uh, concerns about safety and abandonment, short periods of strong reaction mixed with acting as though nothing happened. Nightmares, super common here. Uh, Regressive behaviors, again, they might need help with tasks they have already learned. In this case, things like how to tie shoes, how to write their name, possible bedwetting as well. Behavior changes, new things like physical behaviors like kicking and hitting, and uh, physical complaints. This is when death can start to affect kids on a physical level. So things like headaches, stomach aches, body pain, this can also be brought on by just anxiety and thinking about death as well. Ways to help kids between five and eight are to explain the death honestly using concrete language. Again, things like daddy's heart stopped working, daddy's body stopped working. Again, using the words dead and death and dying, uh, avoiding euphemisms such as gone, sleeping, passed on, lost, etc. Be prepared for repetitive questions. And it's not that they don't believe you, it's that they just need to be reassured over and over and over again that what you're speaking is the truth. This is the way that it is. Providing opportunities for big energy, expressing big energy, running around, and more creative play. Allow kids here to talk about their experience and to ask questions. Again, uh, just like two to four, you want to offer lots of physical and emotional nurturance. And again, give choices whenever possible. Say things like, your room needs cleaning. Would you like to do it in the morning or tonight? So for ages eight to 12, they are still concrete thinkers, just like the five to eight group, but they're beginning to understand abstract ideas, uh, emotional ideas like death and grief, things they can't quite see that they can't touch. They're um, making closer connections with friends and activities outside of their home and family. So their social circles are expanding here. Concept of death at this stage is that death is permanent. They're understanding that death is permanent and they start thinking about how the loss will affect them over the long term. So they might start thinking about becoming teenagers, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, adults, and how that death will affect them for the rest of their lives. Some children will also focus on the details of what happened to the body of the person who died. So wanting like biological explanation of what happens when a person's body dies. Feelings of guilt and regret can lead to concern that their thoughts and actions made the death happen. They may say or think things like, if I had only done my homework, my teacher wouldn't have died. Or I think it was my fault because I was mean to my brother. So this this concept of if I had done things differently, if I had done things better, or if I had done more of something, that uh, I could have prevented the death. So they're no longer acknowledging that death is reversible, but that they could have prevented what happened. 
Common responses to grief between 8 and 12 are expressing big energy through behavior, which is sometimes seen as acting out, especially by teachers and other uh, professionals, coaches, things like that. Anxiety and concern for the safety of themselves and for others. They might start telling the story that the world is no longer safe. If people die, the world is no longer safe uh, and can worry about something bad happening again. So anxiety here as well. Uh, In school, you might see difficulty concentrating and focusing. You might have to repeat yourself when you talk to them. Nightmares, Again, physical complaints like the five to eight groups, so things like headaches, stomach aches, body pain, this is grief manifest in the body. Using play and talk to recreate the event, they might rehash it in their own ways or use toys. They'll ask more detailed questions, they'll want explanations about death and dying, uh, and they experience kind of a wider range of emotions. The emotional spectrum is growing bigger, so rage, revenge, guilt, sadness, relief, worry. And this one also has like a hypervigilance and an increased sensitivity to to noise, to light, to movement, and to change because their physical bodies are developing as well. So their eyes are becoming sharper, their ears are becoming sharper. They just notice the things around them a lot more uh, keenly in this stage. And then also you can see a withdrawal from social situations, a desire to not go to after school club or to not eat with friends at recess or at lunch. How I like to view this stage in kids' lives is these kids are starting to tell stories. And They want the full story from you. They want details. They want explanations. They want to be able to round out the story that they're telling themselves. This means more detail on your part, but also a more just expanded perspective in general. They want to know how death affects them, but they also want to know how death affects you and others. And they're kind of starting to solidify their beliefs about the world. So ways to help the 8 to 12 group are to inform yourself about what happened with this death. Answer questions as clearly, concisely, and accurately as you possibly can. And if you don't know, say, I don't know. Even though kids this age are starting to grasp abstract thought, it's still helpful to not use euphemisms here. So don't use sleeping, passed on, gone away, use dead and dying and died. Important here as well to provide a variety of activities for expression. So talk, art, physical activity, play or writing, uh, art therapy, music therapy are super helpful here. Things they can put their hands on, but have that uh, emotional kind of abstract part as well. Another thing that was helpful here is to help children identify people and activities that help them feel safe and supported. So maybe if after school club doesn't feel good anymore, would you like to try something like piano lessons? Or maybe you want to spend more time one-on-one with your teacher or with your uncle or with your uh, neighbors across the street. Maintaining routines and limits here as well, but being flexible when needed. Maintaining as well, giving children choices. Would you rather set the table or put away the dishes after the meal? working to reestablish safety and predictability against schedules in the morning, schedules in the evening. This is a good one too. And this is modeling expressions, modeling emotions and taking care of yourself. So with their senses becoming sharper, kids are much more perceptive in eight to 12 about how you're taking care of yourself and how you're behaving. Younger kids will notice these things and they'll more pick up on the energy of that. But eight to 12, especially will see how you are performing these behaviors and model that for themselves as well. This is a stage parents, adult friends of children who are grieving to be a good listener. Avoid giving advice unless they ask for it and avoid analyzing or dismissing their experience. So what happened to our listener that wrote in? Avoid doing that with kids. They are going through something just like you're going through something. Talk with teachers here, counselors, coaches about providing extra support and possible flexibility with assignments. Um, And then see professional help. This is a good time to take kids where they can actually talk through their emotions with someone with some guidance if you're struggling on your own, especially if you have concerns about self-harm or suicidal thoughts. 
The next one and the last one we'll go over is ages 13 to 18. And this developmental stage, uh, teenagers are cognitively able to understand and process abstract concepts about life and death. They kind of see these as these abstract entities. They're beginning to see themselves as unique individuals, which are separate from their role in the family, and they may uh, manifest as wrestling with identity and who they want to be in the world. So there can be a lot of changes here in priorities, spirituality, sexuality, and physical appearance. So anything that they can change or would like to change, they probably will be experimenting with. Teens here often will rely on peers and others outside of the family for support. So don't be offended. It's not you. It's how teenagers operate. Uh, the concept of death here, teens understand that death is permanent. This is totally locked in by this point. They might have um, unspoken or imagined like fantasy thoughts or magical thoughts of the person being on a long trip. So whoever died being gone for a long time or on a vacation, they might also delve into deeper questions about the meaning of life, purpose, symbolism, uh, things like that. Common responses to grief between 13 and 18 are a withdrawal from family or from other support networks and a shift in that focus on connection with peers. Maybe a support group for other teenagers who have lost would be a great idea because then they can share that journey with people that, that aren't their parents, that aren't the primary adults, quote unquote, in their life. So they can still distinguish themselves as separate people with opinions and experiences. Uh, increased risk-taking sometimes, so drugs, alcohol, unsafe behaviors, uh, an inability to concentrate, this carries over into school, and or pushing themselves to succeed or be perfect. So it's kind of, you can get both ends of the spectrum here. Difficulty sleeping, lethargic, exhaustion, lack of appetite or opposite side of the spectrum, uh, overeating, unpredictable or at times intense, intense emotional reaction. So anger, sadness, guilt, relief, anxiety, the spectrum of human emotion is still widening here. Worrying about the safety of themselves and others, a fear about death or violence happening again in the family, and confusion over role, identity role. A lot of times teenagers, especially if a parent dies, are given parental type tasks to take on younger siblings or other household duties and become kind of the replacement parent, and there's a lot of pressure there. Uh, teenagers are subject to thoughts about suicide and self-harm. And again, hypervigilance, increased sensitivity to noise, movement, light. Again, just noticing more the things around them, becoming very perceptive. If you're an adult friend, parent, caregiver to a teenager who is grieving, you can reinforce assurances of safety and security, even if teens do not express concern. So if they're not talking about it, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You can still say something about you know, this home is still a safe place for you, and we are here for you. Uh, allowing for expression of feelings without trying to change, fix, repair, or take them away. Again, just like all the other age groups, answering questions honestly, but here you can provide more detail. Providing choices. Again, choice comes up in every single stage whenever possible. You can relate it to the death as well. You can kind of get deeper into it and allow them to be creative. So I would like to do something to honor your dad's birthday this year. Would you like to participate? What ideas do you have? Adjusting expectations, big time parents, uh, for concentration and task completion. So kind of easing up a little bit, adjusting your expectations on the time frame that things get done and how they're done, how well they're done. Teenagers are also a lot more equipped to answer things like open-ended questions. So what was it like for you? What has been your experience? Just listen and be there with them very honestly. And again, uh, just like the 8 to 12 group, seeking professional help for any concerns around self-harm, suicidal thoughts. In my head, I kind of view this stage of grief development as 
nothing is too crazy or too scary. People like to put them in this box of rebellious or unpredictable, but really in my head, I like to, I like to view it as, as kind of trying to get a grip on the world. We're trying on a lot of emotions. One second, they'll say, I like to think that mom is somewhere on a long trip. Another second, they'll say, I wish I was dead too. How much of this can I feel? What does it feel like? Kind of the extremes of everything, because wow, these emotions, these experiences are coming here for the first time. And especially with grief, that's a lot of, that's a lot of intensity to be feeling for the first time as you're also experiencing emotions, period, at this level for the very first time. Best thing to do here is not to treat this like a phase and more like a testing full range of their adult wings. Like what do all of these things feel like? What are the experiences I'm having? So you're going to get a lot of highs and lows. And that kind of sums up grief in each developmental stage from age two all the way up to age 18. I think the biggest takeaways for this for adults is to model your grief for your kids. Don't hide away when you cry because you think you have to be strong. Don't throw yourself into work or hurry your kids off to school immediately after a loss because everyone needs to be busy. Uh, Try not to engage in stuffing behaviors like eating, shopping, and drinking because children are very, very monkey-see, monkey-do when it comes to grief. So if you lock yourself in your room to cry and to mourn, that's exactly what your kids will do. And there's an emotional disconnection between the two of you there. If you refuse to answer their questions about death or what happened or lie to them or don't provide the detail that they're looking for, they will refuse to answer your questions when you ask questions of them. Grief at its core in a parent-child relationship is an awesome, and I'm meaning like a huge type of awesome, not a wonderful type of awesome, because it's not always wonderful. Grief at its core in a parent-child relationship is an awesome, powerful way to build trust and humanness and transparency with your kids. If you're crying, just say, mommy is sad because pop pop is dead. Daddy is frustrated because his best friend died. Mima is crying because her sister is dead. That's enough for kids to understand that something has happened to trigger this emotion and that you're expressing that emotion and that is normal. So second takeaway is don't stop talking about loss because kids are no longer in the developmental stage where their loss occurred. Don't assume that they learned everything about death they need to know at age four. And once they hit elementary school at five or six, you're done talking about it. Their lenses on grief, as we saw from the Dougie Center's research, are widening all the time as they live more of their life, live life, as our listener wrote. So continue to entertain their questions about death, grief, loss, and provide new information as it comes to you, as you experience it, and as you get more information about the specific loss as well. Third takeaway, this was mentioned in a couple of the stages, but I want to say it again, do not, do not, do not use euphemisms for death, especially for younger kids. You say daddy's in heaven now and your child may want to travel to visit him there. You say Nana is just sleeping and instantly you've created a negative association between death and sleep, or your child might be afraid to go to bed at night. You say they're in a better place now and your child may blame themselves for not creating a good enough place here on earth, uh, so much that their loved one had to die to be in a better place. Fourth takeaway is to be careful of the six big grief myths. And if you haven't already, check out episode five of Coming Back called The Six Grief Myths and Why They Suck. Uh, They are get busy, 
Grieve alone, don't cry, replace the loss, time heals all, and be strong for others. These are the top six myths society tells us will make us feel better about our loss, but actually don't. And they're taught to us generally at a very early age. So it's great to try to avoid those pitfalls when you're talking to your kids about grief. So to learn more about them, you can listen to that episode of Coming Back, episode five, or read the Grief Recovery Institute's book called When Children Grieve. And I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. Bottom line with all of this today, and I know I've just thrown a lot of information at you about grief, developmental stages, kids, what have you. Bottom line, keep kids included in grief. Allow them to express their own grief. Don't tell them to suck it up, be strong, stop crying, go away, that they don't understand, and show your own grief to them. It builds massive bridges between you when you can share these grieving human moments together. And it might not feel that way. It probably won't feel that way. In fact, your uh, your own conditioning about grief and death and loss might be telling you that my kids must think I'm so weak now. My children must think I can't take care of them because I'm sitting here crying. My kids have never seen me like this. But trust me and trust the research here too, that transparency and honesty and normalizing grieving out in the open is one of the best gifts you can give your kids when it comes to their emotional development. So thank you so much, listener, for bringing up this huge, huge topic here with grief and childhood development in my private Facebook group. If you would like to join the group, please search The Grief Growers Garden on Facebook or check out today's show notes for a direct link. If you'd like to chat more about grief at different stages of development, join me this Monday at one o'clock central time on Facebook Live, just like my Facebook page, Shelby for Scythia Intuitive Grief Guide to be notified when the broadcast begins. Next up, we'll talk to Harriet Cabelli about her daughter's life-changing diagnosis and how she was inspired to write her new book, Living Well Despite Adversity. Harriet Cabelli is a social worker and positive psychology coach. Harriet's passion is working with people to help create their best possible life. She journeys with them as they cope and grow beyond their painful situations, losses, and adversities. Harriet is an engaging speaker and workshop facilitator. She's one of the coaching experts on the WOR radio show, Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, and has appeared on ABC and Fox News as a parenting coach. She is a very fulfilled empty nester, loving her work as well as time with her grandchildren, traveling, and always looking to take on new adventures and learning opportunities. She recently published her first book, Living Well Despite Adversity, a project she is very proud of. She is thrilled to be getting the voices of 36 inspirational people who have transcended their personal challenges out there so that all can benefit from their honesty and wisdom. Well, Harriet, welcome to Coming Back, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Can you start us off with your loss story and the experience of loss in your life? Yes, and thank you, Shelby, for having me on. So my story goes back many, many years, but as you'll hear, I live with it all the time because it's around my daughter having disabilities and finding out when she was nine months old, specifically what her neurological deficits were. And having found that out, um, I went into my tailspin of grief over the loss of the perfect child. And as we all know, we who have experienced uh, having children, being pregnant, when we are pregnant, we are all in anticipation 
and gleefully excited and over the top over having a child and nothing but positivity crosses our mind. So we don't think of, oh my God, what if I have this or what if I have that? It's just, I'm having a baby. So when that dream and expectation gets shattered by a diagnosis of not exactly what you expected. Now, mine did not come upon her birth. She had a perfectly normal birth and we thought she, everyone thought she was doing fine and normal until she wasn't hitting her milestones. So basically we started running tests at six months old and we got her diagnosis at nine months. So when you have a diagnosis after a, a dream that you've expected to go well all along, it's pretty shattering. And um, I went into my dark cave of bitterness and rage and why me? That was my mantra. That was my theme of grief, if, if I can call it that, was why me? Why is this happening? Did I do something? Did who, who, Why is this universe, why is God doing this to me? Not saying that's a healthy place, but that's where I went. So I, I couldn't function very well because I felt so angry and bitter and jealous. I had another child and when I would take her to the playground, she was two years older than my second daughter who was born with the disabilities. When I would take her to the park, I found myself not even being able to sit there comfortably because I was just looking at everybody else and thinking, again, why me? Why can't my daughter hold up her head? Why can't my daughter start to, to walk? So I really found that I couldn't even be at the park in a, in a, in a good, normal way. So I got myself a great therapist in Evanston, Illinois, where my daughter was born, and I was in therapy with him. I'll, his name is Dr. Ken Moses. He is amazing. He saved my life, basically, certainly psychologically and emotionally. And I was in therapy with him for a year, ranting and raging, venting and doing all the stuff I had to do to get my, I'll call it toxicity of grief out so that I could move on, as they say. Now, moving on didn't mean waving a magic wand and she was going to be normal. Moving on for me meant that I could get myself in a different place, figure out how I was going to incorporate my new normal, as we say, into my life and figure out what kind of parent I was going to be to her and what I wanted from her or what my goals were going to be. So that became like what I was looking towards. And through the process of therapy, I obviously never got answers for the why me because we know there are no answers for why me. That's the that's the universal existential question. Why do bad things happen? But what I ended up getting was just the the idea that it's not the whys that matter. It's more how. How will I move on from here? How will I cope? How will I re reintegrate a disappointment into my life and and create a new life? or rebuild my life as, as I called it. So it was, became the whys shifted to the hows and the whats. And I really attribute that to going through the process of getting all those feelings out, because I think if we don't do the work initially, 
it does come back to haunt us. It's, I, I always visualize this tube of toothpaste. It's like if you don't really deal with the, the main hurt, like from the top of that toothpaste where like it's supposed to come out, then it starts oozing and all these, these little holes start coming out all over the place and you get all this oozing toothpaste and it makes a mess. And so it's kind of how I, that's just my own little visual. If, if, if I don't deal with the heavy duty stuff when it's there, it's only going to manifest in other ways at other times. And usually they're messy ways. I mean, we know how people will self-medicate and numb themselves and try to do everything to take away pain, you know, alcohol and drugs and all kinds of addictions and acting out behaviors. So I'm a big proponent in working through feelings. And as they say, you, you go through it to come through it. It's not easy, but it was what I was drawn towards because I mean, I'm a, I'm a therapist myself, although I wasn't one at that point. So that's my loss. And I, my daughter today is 35. She's amazing. And she well exceeded and went beyond her horrific prognosis back when she was one, two, and three. But that's why we can't hang our hats on, on prognosis. We have to just do what we have to do and hope for the best. I feel that I've come through it very well and I've rebuilt very well and she's doing well, but it's not to say that there are still not times when I feel sad and I still go into my, isn't it too bad? And I think that's very normal. What it is, is I don't go back into a deep hole. It's a little bit of a step back if I'll feel depressed or I'll, you know, go into my little bubble or cocoon. But I come back because I feel like I've gone through the work and I'm able to manage it. That makes perfect sense to me. And thank you for sharing that story with us. When back then, did you recognize they're like, this is bad enough that I need therapy? Or was therapy like your first option? Like you got the news and you're like, okay, I'm going into therapy. How did you know? Um, I got the news and I am a... I don't know what uh, I'm a doer. I'm a I'm proactive. I got the news, and then when I actually started, um, I had enrolled her in an early intervention program right away. I mean, that was per recommendation of the doctors. And in the program, they always put up notices and flyers of all kinds of support and and resources and and lectures. And there was a a flyer with a, a lecturer talking in a special ed school on the shattered dream. Ah. And, 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 and that was Dr. Ken Moses. And he gave this talk to parents of newly diagnosed children. So it was like, oh my God, I'm going to go to this. And I went and I was mesmerized with him. And I went right up to him after that talk. And I said, do you see private clients? And when he said, yes, that was it. I was in his office the next week. So it wasn't that I was looking for the therapy per se, but I was right away looking for words and messages and what can help me. And I mean, I mean, I that's just me. I I like talks and lectures and learning and classes and reading and books. That's just who I am. So I was drawn to this lecture. It spoke to me, and that's what resonated with you. I love it. I'm interested now to talk about the dichotomy of having you say you have another child. I have two others, actually, an older one and a younger one. Nava, that's her name, Nava, N-A-V-A. She is my middle daughter. So can you talk about the contrast of balancing your three kids and having one with neurological deficits and having two who lead, quote unquote, 
normal lives? Like how does grief integrate with that? Do you feel like attention has been distributed the same way? Do you grieve for them differently than you would grieve for your daughter? Right. So that's a great question because that's a a perpetual challenge when you have more than one child because the the one with the issues or problems, whatever word you want to use, obviously needs more attention just vis-a-vis practicality. I'm taking her to speci- um, speech therapy and physical therapy and occupational therapy and her special programs. So just by virtue of all the things I had to shuttle her to, um, she's going to get more attention. But I worked very hard at trying to be cognizant of giving attention and good attention and one-on-one and making it fun for my other kids as well. So for instance, when I would be taking Nava almost at least three to four days a week after school to her other therapies, I would take my younger daughter. Well, I really had to. It wasn't a choice. She, I couldn't leave her alone and no one else was home. So I would take my younger daughter who's five years younger and I would take her with me. And I always felt bad that she had to like be schlepped along, you know, be dragged along. So I try to make it fun. I try to be very, so we would take games and all different things to play. That became our hour that while Nava was in with her therapist or wherever she was, that would be our bonding time where we would do fun things in the office, or we would go out for ice cream, or we'd go to the duck pond. There was a a nice park near one of the therapist's office. And I remember during fall, we would, we would make leaves and jump in them. And during, when it was snowing, we'd make Snow snowmen during that time. I carved it out so that those hours would be our time. And I did it very intentionally. And as far as just at home, I tried before bed to say, you know, to really talk and, and, and give that one-on-one time. As far as my older daughter, she was two years older than, than Nava. Again, I was always cognizant of giving the time, but it didn't, uh, it didn't manifest as much because she was more in her schoolwork and putting her, you know, keeping herself in her room more. But again, I, it, it is a balancing act. And I think that we could really shortchange our other kids if we don't, uh, if we're not aware and if we're not very intentional about it. I was also very sensitive to the fact that I didn't want to make her siblings feel that they, that it was put upon them to like take care of her. Uh, or like, well, you're the older sister, you know, you got you got to do this, you got to do that. Of course, they had to help out, but not where I wanted them to feel put upon or it's a burden and that I'm, they're always, oh, God, I have to do this for her and that. I wanted it to be more as they wanted it, you know, sensitizing, but not obligating, if that makes sense. Yes. And I love that verbiage too, sensitizing, but not obligating. You can be present, but you don't always have to participate. Right. That's beautiful. Do you think they know that or see that or acknowledge that from you now? Uh, my younger daughter, for sure, because we've had conversations on it. My older daughter, I th- yes, she recognizes it. I mean, she lives overseas. We don't talk about it that much or, or engage in that regard so on such a deep level. But she's very, she, yes, she is aware of it because uh, actually, come to think of it, she's recently told me that when she was speaking to some mom's uh, where she lives and where they have some kids with ADD or autism or what have you. And she'd say, you know, my mother didn't enable my sister. My mother really pushed my sister to be as independent as she could. So now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, she's actually come back and relayed to me how she's had a couple of conversations with with mommies about and using me as an example. So that kind of felt good. <laughs> yeah, I was saying, I was going to say that must feel good. 
Yeah. What is the story that led you from the day you found out the news about your nine-month daughter to, okay, I'm going to make this my my heart's truth, the people that I, the thing that I transmit to others is the truth. Okay. So, and that's beautifully stated. And in order to answer that, I have to move into a different, a different event, uh, near calamity that happened to her because that really is what pushed me into, if we're going to move into the book. So let me start by saying I have always, since I'm a teenager, been interested. I don't know why, but I've been always drawn to the theme of people living well, despite my parents got divorced when I was four. Now, back in the 60s, that was not very common. So could I say something like that kind of sensitized me to people having struggles and trying to overcome? I don't know, maybe subconsciously, but I don't feel like it did. But I was always interested in this idea of how people go beyond their troubles because it seemed that you had two types of people. You had people who would have bad things before them and they would kind of crumble and become bitter and have miserable lives. And then you'd see other people who had terrible things happen and they'd be smiling and going on. And it's like, I would wonder in my late teens, early twenties, how is that? And I had a boyfriend at the time, and this was pretty, a pretty defining moment too. I had a boyfriend when I was 18, 19, who had a mother whose mother had gone through some horrific things. She lost a child in a car accident. She had a child with CP, cerebral palsy. She had breast cancer. And I'm, and I'm looking at this woman and I'm thinking, look at her disposition. Look at her attitude. This is like amazing. So I was very inspired by her. So I did readings and I was just, again, it was something I was always interested in. And the first time I ever read the book, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. To me, that's a life transformative book. And it's all on this theme of transcending adversity. He was in Auschwitz and many other concentration camps and how people can go through horror and come through it and come through it standing and pick up the pieces and go on. I won't get into the book, but it's highly recommended as a must read, in my opinion anyways, and it is a classic. So that's what I'm saying in terms of I always was interested in this theme. So now fast forward in terms of my daughter, uh, 17 years, 18 years, she's 18 years old, and she has a condition, a medical condition, having nothing to do with her disabilities called ulcerative colitis. It's inflammatory bowel disease. Some people have Crohn's, some people have colitis. She was diagnosed with colitis at 12. It's like, oh God, now she needs something else. It's not enough what she has. Now she has something else to deal with. That was when she was 12. And I had to like go back into my own state of how I'm going to deal with this one now. And she managed it and she was on medication and and she did well. Five to six years later, she gets a horrific flare-up. They can't control it with medication. They try all kinds of things to prevent her from having to have her colon removed. And she was on a lot of immune suppressants. She is the one in a million that came down with a secondary infection that put her basically into a drug-induced coma on a respirator where she almost died. Oh, my God. On this respirator in a drug-induced coma for almost four months. Then after that, she miraculously survived, and then she moved into a rehab hospital for uh, the next nine months, having to relearn everything from picking up her finger to swallowing and breathing on her own. She had a trach, and she had to relearn every motoric and bodily skill and function. So 
that was a year of a medical crisis. Now, she miraculously survived, completely recovered, and has her life back. So after that, I said to myself, whoa, how do I how do I honor this miracle? I mean, we all know that when bad things happen, so many times people, you know, start foundations and causes when when there's deaths and people want to do something big to commemorate a, a life. And I looked at it and said, but I want to honor a miracle. So I started you know, looking and, and, and I also said to myself, so how do I just go back to my life as before? What am I just pick up the pieces and resume? Okay. So yes, but that kind of what I did. I went back to my school job. I was a school social worker, but it didn't feel right. And I was in terrible angst. And I said, I, I don't know what to do, but this does not feel right for me inside. So I started doing all kinds of things, looking into all kinds of meaningful things. We, I, I raised a service dog to work with the disabled. We were foster parents for a, a beautiful lab oh. that then passed his test and went on to live with a, a little boy who has cerebral palsy in Pennsylvania. I did a Patch Adams trip, clowning trip in Sicily to hospitals and orphanages. And I'm not a clown, but Hey, I was always enamored with Patch Adams, who's this amazing doctor. Sure, uh -huh, they, yes. had a, they made a movie about him. So I did that, and I, I just tried a lot of different things. Um, I tried a book. I tried a memoir because I always liked writing, and I got a person to write it with me, and I got an agent, and it got rejection after rejection after rejection. And although we all know that the Chicken Soup books got about 90 rejections, and they finally hit it big, the agent at some point said, put put the project down. This is an evergreen theme, you know, a universal theme of, of, of loss and survival. Pick it up again in a few years. So I started a blog. I started a blog called Rebuild Life Now because that was my thing, how we rebuild our lives through adversity. And I decided that I was going to do a project. And my project was going to be, I was going to do monthly interviews of people who had to rebuild their lives through whatever challenges or losses they went through. That sounds so this very familiar. <laughs> right. So this tied in well with my theme of life, as I call it, like I said earlier, since I was a teenager, and with going through what I had been through and honoring and seeing and, and trying to look to inspire other people that there is life after loss or life through challenge. So every month I was able to find someone who had transcended their, their loss, their adversities. I looked for a diverse group of challenges. I didn't only want people who were, who were grieving loss through death. So it's many, many things. It's people, someone who is blind, someone who is raped, people who have special needs children, people who are special needs themselves, people who've become quadriplegic, people who've just, you know, not just lost a parent, lost a child. So it's, so I ended up with 36 interviews, one a month for three years. They're all on my blog. And at some point people started saying, what are they sitting on your blog? Why don't you compile them into a book? And that became my project. So when I closed up the book of the memoir, that chapter, so to speak, literally and figuratively, mm -hmm. and I didn't know what else to do, this kind of evolved. So it evolved over five years and now it came to fruition. <laughs> the book came out in wow. August. <laughs> Yay. And I'm cheering for you. I've got chills on this end because literally it's like 
you feel this there's a potential to feel a mass amount of failure when an agent says, put it down. We're not going to do this right now. We've gotten way too many rejections. Try it again another time. There's a potential to feel a mass amount of failure there. But to put that down and be like, I'm still not done with this. I've got this itch for something else. Yeah. To do something else for three whole years and then another two years and then have that turn into the book right. is, you know, it's it's a lesson in waiting, but it's also a lesson in timing. And it's also a lesson in I'm making this happen no matter what. No matter what avenue this takes, I'm making this happen no matter right. what. Right. And it was something that was very meaningful to me. You see, at any point in time, it was very easy to put it down. Not when I was doing the actual interviews for those three years. That I absolutely loved. And I was amazed that I could get some some of the people I got. I mean, I got some named people and like, who the heck am I? I'm no Diane Sawyer or anybody. But these people just, <laughs> they just said yes to me, such as Cheryl Strade, who wrote the book Wild. Right yes. before her book hit the bestseller list, I got to her. Meredith Vieira, who's been, she was, you know, the millionaire person and, on, and a yes. big TV person in at least here in New York, and Temple Grandin, who has who's, who's the advocate for autism, and, and and a bunch of other authors. And because I'm I love books, I call myself a bookie. Many many of the people I interviewed have written books because how would I find these people through book reviews? Oh, this one wrote a memoir. They went through this. I'm going to contact them. And I was just astonished that most people said yes. It didn't have to take me two years. That was my doing because I would put it down and, you know, the procrastination, it's not going to go anywhere. What am I doing? But because it was something that was meaningful to me, I said, I have to do this. I don't care how long it takes. And I don't even care. I really do care. But during the process, it's like, I don't care. I'm not thinking about whether it's going to do well or not do well. I just want to know I did this. It's a meaningful endeavor for me. So if somebody were to come up to you and say, what is the book about? What would be your response? It is about people and their ability to transcend their personal challenges and go on to live a good life. Mm, I love it. That's a perfect one sentence synopsis. And I'm a little bit curious uh, because you use the word resilience a lot in your book and on your website. Uh, if you've uncovered any patterns or if there's like a secret of resilience that maybe you've noticed through all of your interviews and writing. So, yeah, and that's a great question on resilience because as I'm sure you know, that's a, hot, that's a hot topic today. And there's tons and tons of research being done on, on resilience, whereas we used to think that, you know, you're born with a certain amount and you either got it or you don't. But what they're discovering is that resilience can be grown and developed like a muscle. And that's really the key. And that's what I've always thought to myself. It's not that how do we go through life without anything bad happening? No. It's how do we go through life knowing that the bad's going to happen, but how do we cope and live? And that's why I put that word in despite. Despite the bad. How do we still have a good life? The one and only life we're ever going to have. How do we still have a good life despite and the how is? Resiliency through gaining a core strength. I can build. Whatever I have, I can have a little more. I can, I, can, I can learn a little more. I can do a little more. I can be a little better. I can be a little stronger. But I have to be intentional about it. It's not just going to come my way. I have to, it's a choice. I have to be aware and I have to say, I need to do certain things. For instance, when I lived up at the rehab hospital with Nava for nine months, 
I knew I had to be by her bedside. I was by her bedside 12 to 13 hours a day. I called myself like her cheerleader. But I said to myself, I got to keep myself healthy because and strong. I don't want to get colds and, and be sick and I don't want to pass anything on to her. And I'm not a pill popper. And as much as the doctors, one particular one said here, get, have a prescription for an anti-anxiety. It's a long road ahead of you. You may need something. I'm pretty stubborn and I'm not and I don't like pills. And I said, I'm going to try this on my own. If I still can't function well, then of course I'll take something. So every day I would walk. I intentionally set myself to say, I, I have to do something physical. I have to keep myself strong. So I started walking. And in fact, in the dead of winter here in, well, I don't have to tell you, you're in Chicago. So we're in, New York, we're in frigid weather here too. It's and snowing snow. today. Right. So in the dead of winter, I'd be walking on the streets up in Westchester where they don't even have sidewalks. And it would be snowing and the school buses would be passing. In other words, her rehab hospital also had a school attached so that the kids who were in the hospital rehabilitating could attend classes. So the, the, the school buses that would take the kids to and from the hospital would be, you know, doing their rounds and they'd see me walking and they'd always honk. I, there's a couple of bus drivers in particular. Come, we'll give you a, we'll, we'll drop you back off at the hospital. And I'd always say, no, 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 this is part of my therapy. I'm walking back to the hospital. So, this, <laughs> so I'm saying realize we're not just fixed human beings. We're malleable. We can change. We can grow. And nothing is nothing is set. It's not set in stone. And if I could just say one more thing about that, there's a, a psychologist from Stanford University, uh, Sonia Lubriansky, if I'm saying her last name right. And she, she researches on happiness and well-being. And she put out what they call, oh, I think she calls it the, the pie of happiness. And what she f- discovered, which to me is fascinating, is that out of the pie, if you divide it up into circumstances, you know, the things that befall us that we have no control over or some that we do and what we're born with and our attitude and our what we input. So here's the numbers. It's 50% genetic, 10% circumstance, and 40% intentional behaviors. M- intentional behaviors meaning our attitude, our choices, and our behaviors. Now, that's a lot when you think about it. That's pretty, that's a lot. That's almost half that we could input into ourselves just through our mindset, our choices, our sense of responsibility, and how we choose to respond to what happens to us. And that's probably the biggest lesson in the book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, coming back to him. The biggest, at least my biggest takeaway, is that idea of it's not what happens to us, it's how we respond to what happens to us. The secret to coming back from the hardest things that happen in our lives is resilience. But the secret to resilience is that it doesn't get handed to you. You must start working on that for yourself. You must engage with resilience in order to build it. I think a lot of people, especially after loss, think that if they just stop doing what they're doing or seek out the right person or the right book, that they'll just be handed resilience. And it's it's a practice of coming back over and over and over and over and over again. Right. And I like that word you use. It's a practice. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every individual has to find their renewed purpose after going through anything bad or any loss or any challenge. So I'm, I'm getting back to the quote that I was thumbing through. This one's on purpose. It's by Nietzsche. He who has a why 
to live for can bear with almost any how. And in this point, the why meaning a purpose, not the why that I spoke of at the beginning of this podcast, which is why me and why do bad things happen, but a why meaning the purpose. He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. And after people go through terrible things, they have to they have to rebuild that why. They have to rebuild and reconnect with a new purpose. And that's really crucial. And I think when you do that, you have a, a, a good shot at carrying on in a, in a hopefully good way. What is your why now? Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> what is my why now? Wow, I got to think. My why, I mean, I'm just thrilled. I'm just so excited living every day. I can't wait to get up in the morning because to me, the world is like an oyster. So on a big level, I'm just excited about about living and always taking on new things and challenges and opportunities and fun things and bringing and, and, and things that are meaningful to me. But if we want to be more, a little less global like that, I would say I have grandkids. I have my kids. I have work that is so meaningful. When I work with clients, helping them move in all the ways I've just spoken of, it's the most transformative, inspirational work. I mean, it's deeply connecting with people. For me, there's nothing better than that. That's perfect. I think that brings that brings me so much joy, and I'm so excited to hear that for you, both on a global and a personal scale. I think both of those are really important to hold in our hands simultaneously. So, Harriet, before we get off today, um, can you tell everybody where they can find your book, Living Well Despite Adversity, and also if they'd like to work with you, maybe how they can get in touch? Okay, so my book is on Amazon. So if you just you know Google Amazon Books and then type in the name, it comes right up, Living Well Despite Adversity. And the subtitle is Inspiration for Finding Renewed Meaning and Joy in Your Life. Um, so it's on Amazon. And my website is rebuildlifenow.com. One word, rebuildlifenow.com. And my email is on there. It's harriet at rebuildlifenow.com. And I do work with people through Skype long distance. Um, I'm obviously in New York, so people see me here face to face. But I do do phone and Skype work as well. That's phenomenal. Thank you so much for joining us today on Coming Back. Thank you, Shelby. This was great. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much again to Harriet Cabelli, social worker, positive psychology coach, and author of her new book, Living Well Despite Adversity. Harriet came back by seeking support groups and therapy that spoke to her and continuing to collect stories of resilience throughout her life. She also highly recommends Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, for anyone looking to read more about resilience, purpose, and turning why me into a why to live for. You can find a link to Harriet Cabelli's work in the show notes where you can find her one-on-one -on -one contact information, as well as a link to her new book. Join me for Facebook Live this Monday, January 15th at 1 o'clock Central Time. We'll be diving deep again into childhood developmental stages and how grief is comprehended within each one. We have some new Patreon supporters to honor this week. Shout out to Louisa, Heather, and Audrey for pledging to support coming back on Patreon. Thank you so, so much for keeping this show going. As a reminder, Patreon is a set-it-and-forget-it way to support the podcast each month. Support for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia, and you can find that link in the show notes as well. Please subscribe and tell a friend about coming back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you always and forever to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. 
You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com, subject line, podcast. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you, I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world, and I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.